0: Today's episode, we open up the Gospel of Mark again, now turning to chapter 9, verses 30 through the end, through verse 50. Jesus and his disciples leave the region of the Decapolis and they head back to Galilee, making their way southeast toward Capernaum. And then Jesus once again predicts his death and resurrection to his disciples privately, and they did not understand and were afraid to ask more. But still, Jesus urges humility and service, care for the vulnerable and as we'll talk about today, especially the removal of temptation. Despite their lack of understanding, Jesus prepares his followers for what's to come. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Friday, November 10th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Well, we're live this morning, so feel free to call in with your comments or questions to 800-730-2727, or you can email them to me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also send me a Facebook message. I'll try to get your question or comment out on the air. But for now, let's welcome our guest. It's the Reverend Kevin Yoakum. He's the pastor of Christ the King Lutheran Church in Riverview, Florida. Good morning, Pastor Yoakum. Welcome back to the program.
1: Good morning. How are you?
0: Oh, I am doing well. Uh, it's getting a little chilly where I am. How's the well, weather down in Riverview, Florida?
1: Oh, well, it's November now. So, uh, you know, it's in the 80s. I think it's 86 <laughs> right now outside.
0: Uh, well, I'm sure you guys will manage somehow. <laughs>
1: we're, know, we're getting it, back it into the, the
0: 40s, 30s, 20s. Oh, my goodness. It's no end in sight, <laughs> at least for a while. Well, today I'm glad to have you back as we finish up Mark chapter 9. Uh, I say there's nothing to do but to do it. So let's go ahead and begin our time in prayer, if you would lead us in that prayer.
1: Absolutely. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, all good things come from you. We thank you for this time we have now to be about your word. We pray that you would point us to Christ, teach us his way, increase our faith, and give us joy in living with our Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Well, here we are. Jesus is once again going to foretell his death and resurrection. In fact, I think this is the second of Jesus' prediction of what is to come and we find him traveling with his disciples through Galilee. Anything that we've covered before that you think is important for people to know before we just dive right in? Um,
1: about this, that this is uh, his second prediction uh, that we're going to hear real soon, just the idea of repetition, repetition, re- repetition. You know, if anything is worth knowing, it's worth repeating. And I think that's what that's a great place to start here today is with this uh, you know, he has to come to his disciples again and, and help them remember the the main point that he keeps wanting to drive home. So I think that's uh, – this is a, a good verse, a good three verses to get started on here.
0: All right. Well, let's, uh, let's have them. So starting with chapter 9, verse 30 from the English Standard Version. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying – The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And that's what I talked about at the top of the show. You know, these disciples, they just don't get it. But what I almost think is especially egregious is there they are in the presence of the all-knowing Savior. Of course, he's in his state of humiliation too, but he's still God. They have access to... God himself, and it's okay not to know, but it's really strange that they were afraid to ask. What were they afraid of? Afraid of Jesus? Afraid of the answers? Why does it say they were afraid?
1: No, I don't know. Um, but it's interesting to see see that. Why would they be afraid? Maybe they were just afraid of looking stupid. You know, they, sometimes we say, I don't want to look like the one who has to ask the, this question. Maybe someone else will ask it. Um, but— he has said this before and maybe they're saying, why does he keep saying this? Or why do I, if I ask, maybe uh, I'll find out something I don't want to know. I don't know the answer, or maybe it's just, I'm, I'm not worthy to ask, or I don't want to be the one who, who has to ask. Uh, So I'm not sure about that afraid word, but it does sit out there uh, as being a, a different word. You might think. Um, Well, you are right, though.
0: Like I say, you are right in terms of experience. And when you're in a class, you you never want to be like the I don't know why, because that's why you're in a class, presumably, is to learn things. (laughs) But people are often and I myself is included where, you know, we don't want to be the guy who's like, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, In fact, I'm getting pretty used to being the guy who doesn't know something. In fact, I I like it. You know, (laughs) you get to learn more and more and more. Well, here's something I want to know and see if you have some thoughts on it. So Jesus is, of course, going around. He's he's witnessing to what he's going to be doing. But he says the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him when he is killed. Three days he will rise. Why doesn't Jesus just come out and say, you know, I'm going to be delivered. They're going to kill me. And when I'm killed, after three days I'm going to rise. Why Why do you say think he uses this third-person language?
1: The Son of Man— uh, has kind of a twofold approach, I think, to it. It does, for one, identify him as I'm one of you know, his humanity, it, as I'm one of you all. But it also has this uh, identity that, bring, that comes from the Old Testament, from Daniel, of being the son of man is the one who is the promised Messiah. Uh, you know, from there, the promise is that one like a son of man will be coming. And so when he uses this phrase, the Son of Man, it does kind of keep dropping a hint that he's talking about himself, but he's also hinting that this is the promised Messiah that everybody's been waiting for, for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so, uh, you know, when he says the Son of Man, he's kind of, yeah, doing this thing that I guess a rabbi might try to do of just, have a clever way of speech, but it's more than that. It's pointing out that he's not just uh, another guy. He is actually bringing the promises of God into the world as the promised son of man that they've been waiting for.
0: So it's likely he couches those terms sort of in the spirit of those who have ears to hear, let them hear, because Peter has already confessed him to be the Christ, and he's already acknowledged that, but then he still seems to keep up this This very specific language of and it makes sense what you're saying that he's he's using the language of daniel in the old testament um so it's not just that he's the messiah or the christos but he's also you know fulfilling this prophecy of old that makes a ton of sense well the disciples they don't get it though they're afraid to ask and i think their level of not getting it is no better revealed in than in what happens next starting with verse 33. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, that's Jesus, he says, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down, and he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child, and he put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. All right, so pausing there at the end of 37. So, yeah, Jesus, this is the second time, but way back in, um, oh, my goodness, was it Mark chapter 8? Yeah, I think 8, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. So in the midst of his revelation to them again that that the son of man who's the Christ who they've already said is him they've already confessed that that he's going to suffer he's going to die he's even going to rise again they spend all their time not contemplating those those amazing prophetic words of Christ but arguing about which one's the greatest take us take us through this why is this so inappropriate and 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 how does Jesus handle
1: it uh we just don't understand as humans Uh, that suffering is is the way of God and and is the way he will take us into his kingdom. And that that was the way that he went as well. We just don't get it. And they don't either. When he says over and over again, I think three or four times in the gospel of Mark that he's going to be delivered, arrested, beaten up, killed, and and he'll die. And he'll rise again. uh, They don't understand that he's saying it is for me, for God's purposes, uh, as prophesied, that I will suffer. And that's the good thing that will come from that. And, and they're still kind of looking for the golden crown. You know, they're, they're wondering who gets um, the best reviews on uh, performance evaluations. You know, and so they're trying to figure out still in their way of thinking, they're still looking at pride. Uh, they're still looking at the corporate ladder. And who's higher up on the ladder and who's ready for a promotion. And uh, so, yeah, they're just suffering is not the way you would go. I don't want to sign up for that. I didn't know I signed up for that. You know, we might say uh, to say, you know, when you you take on the job of being uh, a disciple of Jesus Christ, it's just going to be persecution all the way. Are you ready to go for that? And a lot of us would say, wait, 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 let's let's talk about this a little bit more. (laughs) Um, And so the, the idea of looking for, you know, what will essentially be a crown of thorns is just outside of their thinking. And so they kind of fall back to what they know is to think of glory rather than suffering And, and glory instead of a way of a cross. And so they're, well, you know, when it all goes down, which one of us is going to be first, and which one of us is going to be best? And uh, you know, if someone asked us at the workplace, you know, Phil, Kevin, who do you think is best around here? You uh, we we would humble it out and not put maybe our ourselves first, but we wouldn't put ourselves last either. You know, <laughs> right, out, right. I, I'm somewhere in the middle, a little a little bit north of middle, right? The, <laughs> a little top middle. Uh, is where I am somewhere and we would you know our, our great humility would still put us in the best half of the group or whatever
0: oh for but, some reason that reminds me of um, when I was in school and I don't know if you experienced this too but uh, when I was a kid in school and the teachers would sometimes have you grade yourself Um, and I think oh, yeah. this actually happened in college a couple times too and I would always put an a minus you know that way it could be a little humble <laughs> <laughs> but that's how people are right we think of ourselves highly uh, you know, we often think about this, you know, whoever's first will be last, and, you know, that really comes out uh, sort of in joking ways in our culture because, you know, we we don't think in those terms of servanthood. We don't think in those terms. And the disciples, as you've already pointed out, they're still thinking about Jesus's Messiahship. Yeah, they believe he's the Messiah. They believe he's the Christ, but they still believe that he's the Christ that they have imagined that he will be. That he will come in and he will throw out the oppressive Romans. He will fulfill. He will be the new Joshua. He'll come in. He'll restore the kingdom. And yeah, and they're just—it's—it's it's almost like someone who's playing that game where you imagine—you know—if I won the lottery, if I won a hundred million dollars or a billion dollars, what would I do with that money? And you spend some time and you—you you think of all these things that you would do. And that's what they're thinking. I think they're thinking, okay, we won the lottery. We're the inner circle of the Christ. Uh, how lucky are we? And when he sets up this kingdom, by gosh, I know I'm going to be his first lieutenant or I'm going to be the <laughs> vice Christ, vice chaplain or vice uh, uh, <laughs> messiah. I, you know, I, I'm being a little facetious, but, but really so are they. They're sitting there imagining all this power and authority that they're going to have. And I wish I could say that Jesus settles that whole argument with this, but we won't get to it today. But we know from chapter 10, verse 35— James and John, the sons of Zebedee and and, and the mama are coming up and they're wanting Jesus to make one of them, you know, at the right hand and one at the left. So this doesn't solve the issue, but Jesus attempts to teach them, to guide them, to form them by dragging into their midst a child. What is what is he actually communicating when he takes a little boy and takes him up in his arms and points to him and says, this is what it's about?
1: Yeah, uh if you were that child and you got dragged into a, a crowd of 13 men uh, or or more and they're having this big discussion about uh who's the best and all of a sudden, you know, Jesus grabs you and uh pulls you in and puts his arms around you. You're going to say I don't belong here. <laughs> I'm with all the big men. I'm with the big sure. people and I'm just a little kid. And it's just little me. And yet Jesus says, uh if you receive this child as if he were Jesus or sent from Jesus, you are receiving Jesus. You know? And so he's saying, look even for the little ones and look for the little ones and say, uh, Jesus is there. And, you know, so to receive a child in, in my name is uh, I kind of look at the text and I go back and forth. Is it to treat the child like Jesus? And yes. And is it to receive the child as if you represent Jesus to the child? Yes, because every Christian really is representing the Lord to everyone they meet. Um, but here, you know, he says, if you receive this child in my name, you're receiving me. Uh, so even the smallest are not neglected by Jesus. Even the smallest are honored and treasured by Jesus. And the, the last and the servant of all is what he's trying to hold out to them. You know, He, I, I think he, if, if it had been me, right? I'm not Jesus, but if it had been me, <laughs> I might have said something like, stop worrying about what is great. That's not the way to go. You know, this, there is no corporate ladder. You know, that the greatest person in the kingdom is really not even thinking about that, but he's looking out for the good of others. The greatest person in the kingdom has no thought for himself so much as he is humble, and serving and looking to say, how can you know, this person in front of me be, be served? How can God help them maybe through something I can do? You know, how can I be a servant? And he keeps coming back to that serving word. And they again, they, just, they don't get that as much as they get the idea that Jesus is going to uh, die as a way of service to everyone and rise again.
0: In our world and culture today, children are viewed as you know a precious commodity, uh, you know, young people to be protected and, and formed. They didn't necessarily have that same reputation during these times. I mean, certainly people love their children. Don't get me wrong, but children were often uh, a, a burden, um, as they continue to be in some ways. Children were uh, troublesome. Children had no business being in a conversation full of a rabbi and his disciples children were to be seen and not heard and all kinds of other things. So there's even sort of a scandalous part there where you take a someone who's seen as lesser than they haven't really proven themselves. They haven't grown up. They're still very much a a moocher off mom and dad. You take that and you say, this is what it looks like to be great. And he demonstrates by receiving, I guess, you know, someone who isn't valued by society, and and really it's also a reflection of themselves because here they are arguing who's greatest but greatest among whom greatest among poor miserable sinners it it doesn't take you know it, this this is your lot you know jesus is the one who's coming and he's lifting you up because you're the one who is um undeserving i at least that's how i see it do you also see mm-hmm. that kind of connotation or maybe something else
1: No, I think uh, we're in agreement here. Uh, You know, this is going to come to the fore for them uh, uh, on the night of Passover, where they can't decide who should be washing each other's feet. And and they can't decide who's the lowest servant. And, And Jesus, you know, takes off his own shirt and says, I'll be the lowest servant. And you need to learn from me what it means to serve each other. And you know, he uh, he makes it very explicit in in that foot washing. It's almost like the last time he he'll make that clear that uh, the life of a disciple will be to assume the lowest position uh, because there's no reason we need to hold ourselves higher than anybody else in the kingdom of God.
0: Jesus came and you know in his teaching and preaching he he proclaimed love and compassion, forgiveness and service. He healed the sick. Of course, the washing of the feet, as you said, even even his baptism where he wades into a pool of our own sinfulness, he, oh, yeah. he he's always demonstrating to us uh, a God and a love and a life for us to live that is not one that lords over other people. You take that and you compare that with some manifestations of the early church or many people in the church today. How often people are looking to make a name for themselves, to make themselves greatest, to be the greatest Christian, to be the greatest scholar, to be the greatest giver, to be the most and, – and and even in our service is what I'm trying to say, even in our service of others, we can still turn that into something that's about us rather than re, rather than receiving uh, people in Christ's name and distributing his love. Um, I, I think it's a big temptation for people, especially today, to pride themselves on, well, you know, all their good works or all their good vibes or all their good opinions. And and yet here Jesus is talking about love and action. But really, ultimately, he's not pointing to what we should do, but what he has done for us.
1: Right. Yeah. And that's the best way to see that is also if they're saying, well, who could really be such a servant? Uh, he, he's standing in front of them Right. and, and they're, he's trying to be seen. And he's trying to teach them that he will be the greatest servant, and, uh, and their life will be, you know, reflecting that, will be showing that it's not about building my resume of, look how many times I can serve, but it's saying there were people in need, and I just needed to help them. And that's, that was the mind and the heart of Christ. There were people in need, the whole, all of humanity, and he came to help
0: Let's see how that relates to the next section because we're going to tiptoe into it. We don't have uh, a lot of time before the break, but we're going to get it read anyway. So Mark chapter 9, verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. So stopping there at the end of 41. So so John tattles (laughs) to Rabbi Jesus and says, hey, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. You know, I guess Jesus's apostles, Apparently, think they're the only ones who are authorized agents of Jesus. They're the ones who have the franchise. These other people shouldn't be going out there doing this. Uh, Jesus says, "Don't stop him." Why?
1: Well, it's funny that their their desire for greatness, I think, is still carrying on in verse thirty-eight. Uh, they, we, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us, and that word is, you know, I would think it should be he wasn't following you, Jesus. Uh, but they say, he wasn't following us. But Jesus says, don't stop him, right? Like he said, you know, there's nothing wrong with this. He is doing this mighty work in my name, he says. You know, no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be able to speak evil of me. This, this gentleman who's able to cast out demons in the name of Jesus Christ is doing a good thing, a service to people who are tormented by, by demons, And uh, it is in the name of Christ. There's no reason they have to stop him except for it's kind of a, uh, you know, I hate to say kind of a fraternity mentality or something, you know, that you're not in the right group. You know, you're maybe, uh, you know, still uh, a believer and still wanting to cast out demons, but I thought that was our trick, and I thought that's what we do. And so they have to realize that anyone who's trying to serve Christ is offering a faithful service and anyone who is serving others in the name of Jesus, uh, you know, let that stand. Don't, don't kind of come in and and say, well, wait a minute, you're, you you don't have the right, uh, you know, color flag or something like that. Uh, But to say, Oh, you're, you're proclaiming Jesus and, and doing good things for the kingdom of God and for the help of others. In the name of Jesus Christ and uh, you know they need to realize that uh, it's it's not just kind of a uh, you, you're not you're not authorized uh, he's He's serving out of love for a Savior and he's serving out of love uh, for those that are in need and, and Jesus says let let that be that's a good thing.
0: I completely agree with you that their uh, their arrogance, their 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 seeking after greatness shows up here, especially. And I actually hadn't thought about it, but when they say, uh, you know, he was not following us, I, I assumed reading this they just meant them and Jesus. But you know, thinking about it a little more carefully, yeah, I think it would have been more appropriate for them to say you because you know that's who who's to be followed. With that said, though, I think we can also put a little better construction on it. Perhaps the okay. disciples were uh let's say they were concerned about orthodoxy and proper authority. Yeah. You know, th- you know the disciples particularly John they express this unease because well they're not one of us. So maybe they're out there misusing your name. Maybe they're out there teaching false doctrine. Um, we have that same concern today. You know, in our world, how many different flavors or tribes of Christians are there? And and so often our unity, even the unity that we share that is our salvation in Christ is marred by us arguing with one another. Now, I'm the last person you'll ever hear that will say that doctrine is not important. It is. But is Jesus teaching us something about uh, maybe, um, how do we say, isolating ourselves from other other believers? Is the, Can this be applied to that in any way or is that too far?
1: I think you're right. And I was I'm glad you you know kind of redirected me a little bit on this um I think you're right that he is Jesus is saying no that this person is a believer and, and uh you know they might have been trying to protect uh Jesus uh message that goes out into the world. They might have been thinking that they were you know trying to serve Jesus by doing this um and he's really opening it up to say someone who speaks in my name uh And as a believer, it should be treated as such. And and kind of the, I mean, it's kind of a popular word today is tribalism. You know, that some of the, within the umbrella of Christianity, uh, certainly there are differences over doctrine and over the teachings of the word of God that we need to be discerning about. But we also need to kind of recognize that that's a fellow believer, that that person who... Stands under the umbrella of Jesus Christ and His His Word of God and the the Gospel message, is my fellow believer. Uh, I like to try to remind people, uh, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're going to spend forever in eternity with each other so you know this life here is where that starts uh,
0: yeah we might as well helps. start getting along in the areas where we can now see i definitely agree with the the idea that we should not publicly join together with people who are you know preaching a false doctrine even if they're doing it earnestly But at the same time, there are so many ways in which we can work together and we should. But let's think about those things as we take our break. Folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Yoakam and I will keep on going through Mark chapter 9. See you on the other side. Welcome back, dear listeners. I'm Pastor Phil Boo, your host, and this is Thy Strong Word. With me this morning is the Reverend Kevin Yoakum. He's the pastor of Christ the King Lutheran Church in Riverview, Florida. And we're talking about the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 9. Before we head back into the text, though, if you have any feedback, questions, or comments, always feel free to reach out. It's really easy to do. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can search me up on Facebook. You know, you'll know which one's me. Or you can call into the studio at 800-730-2727. Any of these methods can get your question or comment out on the air. But let's head back to the text. Pastor, before the break, we were just getting into, you know, both the disciples, obviously, in their arrogance, thinking that, you know, they had the corner market on Jesus. While at the same time, perhaps they had some good motivations for wanting to protect Jesus. But either way, he corrects them. He says, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterward be able to speak evil of me. This recalls Philippians chapter 1. Paul writes, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Well, only in that every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So it seems like Paul shares Jesus' opinion here, and rightly so, that there is part of it where if Christ is being proclaimed, even out of the wrong intentions, that word is effective. I think it informs us about while it's important that you go to proper sources— the Holy Spirit still works in spite of the messenger, not um, not
1: because of him. Yes, uh, that that uh, emphasis there that Paul says about uh, just rejoicing over the fact that Jesus Christ is proclaimed is um, really the point of it all, and and we should recognize uh, that our, our fellow Christians, for whom we might have some kind of earthly rivalries over. Uh, If they are proclaiming Christ, we need to rejoice in that, you know, just up and down the street and say what a great thing it is that even though we do recognize some divisions of of teachings that we have to, uh, we really want to, you know, recognize and not blur the lines on those that they're proclaiming Christ and they're really trying to do this. I think of this this man who's casting out demons. I mean, that's no small thing. Uh, And, you know, how, uh, I guess it would, I would feel so bad if I felt that he was bringing comfort and wholeness into people's lives. And someone came up and said, Oh, you got to stop that. You know, for whatever reason, you know, to, to have that, that particular gift that he was bringing to others that they could be free of demons. And uh, here someone says, no, 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 we got, we have to ask you to stop. And, you know, that, that comfort and healing to people was put to a stop or they tried to stop them. They said, right. and, and Jesus says, don't stop him," And he's doing this in my name. Uh, this is a good thing that's happening.
0: Well, not to mention that's exactly what the Pharisees did to Jesus all the time, and and here we are, not even a generation into Christians because Christ hasn't even died and rose again yet, and they're already you know being tribalistic. I should I should say. So even if they have good intentions, yeah. you know their good intentions can uh, inhibit the gospel. And even if the other guy has bad intentions, well, it doesn't mean God can't work through him. Now that doesn't get us off the hook for having to, of course, be true to doctrine and proclaim the truth and encourage other christians to do so but yeah i think i think there's a lot of room here for us to say instead of being so jealous of the word we should be very generous with it and rejoice you know and i think this happens a lot of times when i'll go to a shut-in's house and they'll say something to the effect of oh i watched x y and z church on the tv and I'll say, well, okay. what did you what did you hear? You know, let's let's make sure that you're not being taught something different. (laughs) But the point is, it's usually like I took away God's love and comfort for me. And it's like, well, I can't can't disagree with that. Right. I'm not going to sit here and pick apart a sermon if if God worked through that sermon for you. With that said, of course, there is a role for uh, Christians and uh, leaders in the church to protect doctrine. But there's also sometimes when. Well, frankly, just doing these basic comforting things are important because what is this guy doing? He's not necessarily going out there and proclaiming anything. He's not saying Jesus is or isn't the Christ. He's just going out there and he's casting out demons. Jesus compares this to giving a cup of water to his believers. I think elsewhere it talks about to one of these children. I think, is that Matthew 10? Yeah, he says, whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, he will by no means lose his reward. He says the same thing here, that just serving the disciples of Christ because they are disciples, I guess, demonstrates a saving faith.
1: Yeah, it is a a, a recognition of uh, someone who comes in the name of the Lord uh, when someone really treats you uh with with special care or tenderness because you are that uh sometimes i don't as a a pastor i don't want to be treated any differently than anybody else Uh, but there are times when people will say you have a you know at a the luncheon or whatever you have a seat pastor I'll, i'll get you a drink or i'll get you you know a plate of food before you have confirmation class or you know and and they're really trying to uh serve me it's not because Kevin's so great it doesn't take long to figure out how unimportant <laughs> Kevin is but Same it's here. because uh, uh, <laughs> it, it's the it's because they're recognizing that this person is coming in the name of the Lord to try to bring the goodness the message or the the health and healing and mercy of God into their lives and so yeah this uh, this idea of a cup of water if they give it if you give if they give you a drink because you, Belong to Christ, and not even saying a you know a clergy member, but but just because you belong to Christ, they're recognizing Christ in you, and, and what a you know a recognition that is that they're saying uh, this person is a Christian, this person belongs to Christ, uh, this person is honored and treasured by Christ just to be uh, a believer and to be forgiven and saved, and I'm going to treat them with this compassion and treat them with this mercy to, you know, give them a comforting cup of water. Mm. Um, you know, water may be uh, less important or less recognized today, but that a cup of water was a cup of life. Life-saving, yeah. Yeah.
0: And spiritually, too, as Jesus connects water and baptism. So, I mean, it's, it's really this sort of double whammy that, you know, the best way that we can also um, – serve others in the name of Christ is to bring children to faith. And, and he, he illustrates this a little bit because that little boy, the folks at home that was there earlier, he's actually still there in the midst of all of them. At least we think he is, or I think he is, because of what happens next. Let's start with verse 42. Mm-hmm. Jesus continues, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. That's the end of our text. The end of the chapter. So Jesus, in this section, which the editors call temptations to sin, he begins though with something that I think is more scandalizing to some even Christians, and that is he's saying of this little infant boy. And when I say infant, I mean he's probably you know in the in the in the toddler years. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin it'd be it'd, it's really bad for him well I was when I grew up I was taught that the little ones can't believe they can't make a decision for Christ so they can't be
1: a part of Christ's kingdom
0: well what's the deal there
1: well I think we need to be corrected here uh, Jesus is really opening our eyes uh, to what is the nature of faith and uh, where we might say ah they don't have an intellect they 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 can't put the words together. Uh, they don't know the the facts or or know the the stories yet. But here he's uh, is one other time. Yeah, where he says one of these little ones. The the Greek word is micro, uh, the mikros. So one of these micro children uh, <laughs> can believe in Jesus Christ and can also be uh, capable of sin. But the yeah the first part is something to stop and. And really, uh, open our eyes over that they, these are believers. And if we hold off what it is to be, to have faith, or to be believing, or to have some uh, age of accountability, or whatever the, the going term is today, um, really uh, hinders the idea of what it is uh, to have faith and what it is, you know, where the, the children are in the in the kingdom of God. It well, and just the example of oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, just trying to get into the thought
0: pattern of Jesus here, he's saying this right after they both cl- tried to claim greatness or argue over who was greater. And then after John is tattletelling on someone who isn't part of their group preaching in the name of Christ. So it seems like Jesus is saying, You were concerned about stopping someone who's out there proclaiming my name. But maybe you're not as concerned about leading into temptation others like you need to be you need to be more concerned about yourself, about those who are causing others to sin, than you should be about someone who is out there proclaiming my name. I think that still speaks to us about what we were talking about earlier a little bit. You know, It'd be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Um, Not only is that a gruesome death. But even the sea itself, so emblematic and symbolic of chaos and disorder, basically the opposite of God, it'd be better for you to be far from God. Not that you are far from God in the sea, just ask Jonah, but it would be better for you to be far than it it would be to even receive the wrath that you deserve because of that. I mean, I think that's something that definitely should cause us to stop for at least half a second and go, wow, my witness is important. It's not just that I should tell people about Christ, but. Who am I influencing in my life? And am, am I pointing to Christ always, or am I leading people astray?
1: Right. Yeah, we we can affect others in great ways and be a wonderful example uh, and set forward a, a way of life that is, is humble and is kind and caring. But we also know that uh, what people see in us may be something else completely different, and they may learn uh, some terribly bad behaviors or habits from us. And so he's saying, you know, these these children, if you lead one of them into sin, it, you know, you, you might as well just be sleeping with the fishes. You know, he someone said, <laughs> I don't remember who, but someone said, you know, Jesus goes gangster right here. And, you know, he doesn't hold back. He doesn't sound kind of kind in saying you might be condemned. He's just saying, you know, put a rock on you and throw you in the water. Yeah, that's um, bad news. Yeah, well, he then shifts so he
0: really, though from I say he shifts though from our influence of others though to their own temptation though, in that next part and And I had a parishioner come to me once after I preached this well, way way back when I first started, and they asked you know about this particular text because it's really kind of confusing. If you take it literally, you're removing limbs, um but if you take it so figuratively that it doesn't actually teach you the truth, it doesn't impact you then uh, you missed the point. So, uh, brother, tell us the point. Is Jesus telling us to cut body parts off? What's going on?
1: Yes, he is. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> okay, there we go. An Answer amazing hit. <laughs> Well, and, and it, it is an amazing question, and it does strike each one of us the first time we hear it. To, to hear, he says, y- you might as well, if it causes you to sin, get rid of it. Cut it off. You know, just this brutal, grotesque, barbarian idea that might come into our head and he says but it'd be better than being in hell you know uh, it'd be better to be in heaven you know even if you're mutilated than to be in hell because you wanted to keep yourself from any harm you know if you're he's he's pointing out the danger of sin and in one sense he's pointing out repentance that if you have been caused to sin Act accordingly with repentance and do what can uh, either you know correct yourself or not. But I don't know if you've noticed, but we don't have a bunch of handless, footless, eyeless Christians wandering around. So e- either they're perfect, <laughs> or there's more going to you know to work here. Um, his his question of if really does start to get us this answer here. That, you know, if if we've been led to sin, we should react accordingly to try to stop the sin, that's for sure. But it, it's not my hand that causes me to sin. And it's it's not my foot or my eye that causes me to sin. I mean if it was, you know, I I would come to you and say, Phil, I sinned. I need new hands. <laughs> I need I sinned. I need new eyes. But instead, what we say is from the Psalms, from Psalm 51, we say, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We we recognize what, what Jesus has said, that uh, the sin has not come from just my hand, the silly hand. Um, it has come from my heart, the sinful heart of mine. Uh, you know, Jesus says in Mark 7, uh, out of the heart of man come these evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, foolishness, and pride. They come from within and they defile a person. So if I am worried about my own temptations that I have to sin, and if I am concerned about the fact that I have sinned and what can be done, uh, to just look at the hand and the eyes, just looking on the surface, and Jesus directs us uh, deeper to look to the heart, and to say that is what <laughs> that is where my sin comes from. It comes from me as a sinner, and, and I can't cut a hand off and say there I uh, I've gotten rid of my sin. Uh, it, but instead, he he offers us a new heart, and uh, yeah, go ahead.
0: Well, I was just gonna say it certainly is that. I think there's also some practical things too, though, we could take from it because while it's not literally cutting off your hands because, as you so rightly pointed out, that's not really what's causing you to sin, it's your own spirit. But at the same time, there are people, places, relationships, even tempting situations, lifestyles that we might be around or engage in that frankly, lead us into temptation and sin so much that the only thing we can do is lop them off. We got it we gotta we have to completely remove it. You know, if there's a particular aspect of your life that becomes a stumbling block to your spiritual well-being, sacrifice that to Christ. You know, now, obviously, Christ gives us a spirit so that we can be in and around and amongst these people to witness to them or in these places. But once they start to lead us astray, then there are there are consequences to that. Do you also see that as a practical application of this, or maybe there's a better way to put it?
1: No, I agree with you that, uh, you know, we have also, you know, not just to say uh, I need a new heart and I can ignore the temptations, uh, but we are called to flee from sin. We are called to avoid temptations and uh, to put away the thing, you know, that that might be uh, trying to call us in to to watch our company that we are around. Uh, if they are trying to draw us into sin we may just have to say i you know I need to flee from that temptation and it might be distancing ourselves from uh, uh, you know the things that that are that we're susceptible to or to the people that are uh, really you know trying to draw us in uh, knowingly or unknowingly into a sinful behavior and a temptation uh, mm-hmm. th- there are times where we just we have to recognize also, like you're saying, to flee from it, to remove it from our life that um, you know that that would not continue to be a temptation, yeah you know?
0: Well, and we can also connect this. I mean, one of our listeners texted me, uh, Ryan, and he says, you know he about these preachers on TV especially, he says, you know I caution frequently about taking their words at face value, but to always make sure what you are hearing can be backed up and supported by scripture." If not, then it's false doctrine and has to be thrown out. Those comments I think sort of ring in my ears a little bit here because while we're sort of far from what we were talking about earlier, well, at the same time, you know, this is the same conversation that Jesus is having. So doesn't this also speak to things like, yes, there are people out there who are proclaiming the name of Christ and we shouldn't stop them. But there are also people out there that are proclaiming the name of Christ, but they're proclaiming it wrongly. So we should not engage in that, cut that off. So there is a lot of discernment on the part of the Christian. It isn't so black and white and clear all the time. You know, that relationship you're in, is that one where, you know, you need to be out of it because it's causing you to sin? Or is that one where you need to maintain it because you have to witness to that person? So, you know, it's not always easy for the Christian.
1: Right. And we just can't go around killing people. I'm not, not well, sure if right. you knew that, but.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, and but no, but no, you bring up a serious point, which is while we believe that what we proclaim is, is righteous and correct doctrine, um, we certainly don't have any business going around and closing down every place that disagrees with us. It just doesn't make any sense. We don't have that command. But even if we did, well, that would be more work than just proclaiming the love of Christ, which is what we're supposed to be doing
1: yeah and and it does take that discernment to say how will i you know deal with this how if this message is a temptation or or if the um, you know the the draw to a person or a church is something other than the message but then when they go there they get a false message that it does have to be uh you know drawn out with discernment to say be very careful for what they're saying inside you know the the lovely wrapping of something that's uh, fun or enjoyable, or um, uh, you know, uh, attractive, and and to say really the the message inside is, is something that uh, will bring you no life in Christ. Yeah,
0: we're getting pretty close to the end of the program, but let's take some time to talk about hell. So he says, "Hell." The uh, word is Guyana. Um Take us through that. I mean, that's a real place. Uh, Well, hell's a real place too, but it's also a place on earth in the context of Jesus's day. But Jesus is using it, as many of them do, as an example of that eternal separation from God. Uh, Hell's real, but what is it? And who's there? And when will they get there? (laughs) Share with that just a little bit for us.
1: Yeah, this is a very hard subject uh, for two reasons for me. Uh, One is because I hate to talk about it. And it is a you know the reality of it is um, just so stark and and yet unavoidable. And the other reason is because uh, going into all the you know all the terminology for the different words the Bible might have for hell, and we in English will just go it's the place. You know the one word uh, that we have for it, it. It becomes a little confusing, but there is no denying that uh, that. That God in his word has made clear that there is a place uh, where the devil and his, ang- his demons, the evil angels, have been sent and will be sent for punishment. And that that also is the place uh, where those who are without faith in Christ will go. You know, we we try to look at uh, people's works and say, well, they did a, a great big sin; they must be going to hell. Uh, but but I I just did a you know a little white lie, so I'm obviously not going to hell. It's just going to wash off, um, <laughs> wash off. Uh, but really, what what is uh, the thing is that uh, you know who goes to hell, sinners, and who goes to heaven, sinners.
0: Well, sinners,
1: so right? What's the distinction? You know what's the distinction is who goes to hell? Those who do not believe and have rejected Jesus Christ, right. and and who goes to heaven? Uh, sinners, but those who have understood that Jesus Christ is their Savior, and have uh, not uh, cast him, you know, by by unbelief or uh, whatever uh, out of out of their lives. So you know, it's, it's actually not our sins that take us to hell, but it's our uh, rejection of the one who would bring forgiveness and salvation. Um, Jesus, so, quotes,
0: uh, Jesus quotes Jesus uh, quotes Isaiah when he's talking about those who will be thrown in hell. Isaiah says, And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me. And then here's where Jesus starts yeah. quoting. For their worm shall not die, and their fire shall not be quenched. So when Isaiah speaks of that, he's speaking of it in the context of rebellion against God, and Jesus quotes it. So those who are going to hell are those who have in their unbelief rebelled against God. And God sees that as a rebellion. And and of course, original sin stems from rebellion Um, for everyone will be salted with fire, which is uh, not part of the original quote, but then he uses that to, to jump onto the idea that salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness. How will it be salty again? And then he says, have salt in yourselves in the last couple of minutes of the show.
1: What is Jesus talking about, brother? Uh, um, You you know, this idea of salt is good, um, but it has to have an effect. If salt is no longer salty, which is just kind of a strange plea on words, it's it's not doing what it is supposed to do. You know, salt is good, but it's still supposed to sting when it's applied to a wound. Salt is good, but it's still supposed to preserve certain foods and things like that. And if salt can't do that, it's lost its purpose, it's lost its nature um, and so he says, have salt in yourselves, you know be salty <laughs> yourselves uh, and, and in such a way as to you know have an effect in the world, you know, do what you have been made to do be if you are salt, be salty don't don't lose that and, and I've always thought that that you know has that. Uh, meaning there, but I just learned something as I was preparing for this that goes even deeper. Um, In Leviticus chapter 2, all of the offerings that were given to God were to be salted. And that was a new uh, learning for me to see that uh, an offering to God was, uh, it was pleasing to God for it to have salt with it, you know, for whatever, however God has designed the sacrificial system. But the point is that an offering to God has this idea of saltiness. And so he brings that forward to say, you be salty. You be uh, someone who is pleasing to God, and and you be someone who makes someone else, affects them, so that they are pleasing to God. You be an offering to God. And and so I think that the second half of the sentence also is, is along with that. You know, have salt in yourselves, And maybe they're thinking they can remember that, you know, salt is part of the offense to God and be at peace with one another. Uh, You know, all this whole part that we've had today really has shown contention with one another. Who's best? Who do we treat like they're in the crowd? Who do we uh, try to shoulder out of the crowd? Do we regard the highest or the lowest? Uh, Who are we supposed to do this? And yet he calls us to, uh, be salty, have salt in yourselves, and remember uh, to be, you know, I think of this as, you know, you are an offering to God, and be at peace with one another. Uh, so that Leviticus 2 verse, really, I'm I'm still learning it, um, but to see that in the salt, uh, the salt, the offerings to God will, were salted, uh, surely has something to, to do in whenever Jesus says, uh, don't lose your saltiness.
0: I, I think that is true, too, and I'm going to look into it deeper off the air. So we are at the end of the program, though, so I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Kevin Yoakum. He's the pastor of Christ the King Lutheran Church in Riverview, Florida, and I guess he's telling us to stay salty. Thank you, Pastor, for being on the show.
1: You're welcome. It was a pleasure.
0: Folks, come Monday, join me and Pastor Doug Gribbenaugh as we move into chapter 10. We're going to talk about marriage, money, minors. We're going to talk about all those things and a lot more. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.